Hello, and welcome to the Exhaling Words podcast, the language podcast where I just like to sit and talk and listen to the sound of my own voice, and maybe you like that too? For those of you who don't know, my name is Aaron, and I will be your one and only host, and your one and only guide through my messed up life of language learning. (laughs) Now, over the past couple weeks, I talked about some topics that might feel different, but are actually quite related. Two weeks ago, I talked about language proficiency and proficiency tests and things. And last week, I talked about the desire to learn a language and what drives us to learn a language, how do we choose a language. And during that episode, I talked about how sometimes this can actually relate to language difficulty. And so today I want to talk about language difficulty um, and just the concept of relative or subjective difficulty, because I really think that that's all it ever is. However, I do think that there are multiple factors again here at play. So I have three sort of sets of factors that I want to look at, two of which are a little bit related, um, and one of which is more related to what we talked about last week. And I want to try to break down how does a language become difficult? Why do we say that a language is difficult? What is going on in our heads when we say, oh, that's hard? Now, I think all of us can agree that we often hear things like, wow, Chinese is like super hard. It's one of the hardest languages in the world. Or Arabic is one of the hardest languages in the world. Or, wow, Spanish is so easy. Or German is really easy because, you know, you're an English speaker. And we do. We totally hear these things like all the time. But where does this come from? Now, I think some of it just comes from blatant ignorance of people not knowing things about languages and our assumption that that which is different is bad or difficult or not understandable, incomprehensible. But some of this in the language learning world actually comes from a source. So the FSI, which is the Foreign Service Institute, which is um, a branch of the U.S. State Department, or was, I guess, sort of its own thing. They still have their own fourth service exam and things. They ranked languages into five categories based off of their difficulty. Now, they talk about difficulty. People go, oh, well, that means it's hard. But actually, if you look into this, what it is, is not, quote, difficulty. It is the amount of time that it usually, on average, takes a student to reach professional working proficiency, which um, in the ILR scale, which is the International Language Roundtable, which I talked about a couple weeks ago, which goes with the U.S. State Department and the FSI, is a three, which would be on actful, a three would probably be probably a superior, um, and on CEFR, probably, yeah, a C1 minimum, maybe even a C2. And so the FSI scale, or the FSI, created a scale that categorizes languages into five categories of category one, two, three, and four, and five. And then actually within category four, there are sort of like separate languages that are divided into being more difficult. So for category one languages, which is what people often think of are easy languages, these are languages that on average take 23 to 24 weeks or 575 to 600 contact hours to gain that level of proficiency in. Category two is about 750 hours or 30 weeks. Category three is about 900 hours or 36 weeks. And again, these weeks are intensive study, like eight hours a day. 
Category four is about 1,100 hours, which is uh, approximately 44 weeks. And then, of course, the category four sort of plus or four with an asterisk languages that are considered to be slightly harder than other category four languages probably take more time. And then category five are languages that take approximately 2,200 hours or 88 weeks of study to gain a professional working proficiency in. Now, why would one language take less time than another language to get to a professional working proficiency? This is actually based around language similarity. And this is the first topic that I want to talk about today, is what is the similarity between your target language and your native language? Now, the FSI scale is built around English. It was created by the Foreign Service Institute within the State Department of the United States. So this is about how similar are these languages to English, particularly even American English. And so the higher the similarity, the easier and the less amount of time it's going to take for a person who is a native speaker of English to learn this language. So for example, category one languages are things like Afrikaans, Dutch, uh, French, Italian, Spanish, Swedish, Romanian, Portuguese, Norwegian. Um, category two is German. That's the only thing I ever usually see listed in category two. I don't know why, like, Danish is in category one, but German's in category two. Like, grammatically, Danish is, sure, it's a little bit more simplified, but, like, Danish pronunciation, I think, is way more difficult for an English speaker um, than German pronunciation. Category three uh, includes languages such as Indonesian, Malaysian, and Swahili. Category four is the largest category, and this is partially why I struggle with this system, is I, I understand where they're coming from, but this isn't a well-balanced system. And so, I mean, maybe it's just because there are a lot of language out languages out there that aren't similar to English, but I mean, category four has a lot. I mean, if I try to run through this list quickly, we have... <gasps> Albanian, Amharic, Armenian, Azerbaijani, Bengali, Bosnian, Bulgarian, Burmese, Croatian, Czech, Estonian, Finnish, Georgian, Greek, Hebrew, Hungarian, uh, Hindi, Icelandic, Khmer, Lao, Latvian, uh, Lithuanian, Macedonian, Mongolian, Nepali, Pashto, Persian, all three dialects, Polish, Russian, Serbian, Sinhala, uh, Slovak, Slovenian, Tagalog, Thai, Turkish, Ukrainian, Urdu, Uzbek, Vietnamese, Kosa, and Zulu. So, there's a lot there. And then of these, you know, Thai, Vietnamese, Hungarian, Georgian, Finnish, and Estonian are marked as being slightly more difficult. And then there's the category fives, which I like to refer to as the five fives. And for those of you who have been around for a while, I briefly had an Instagram account called five fives to five and five, which was the five category five languages to an ILR five, which is literally impossible, but I love the alliteration, in five years. Um, and those five category fives are Arabic, Cantonese, Mandarin Chinese, um, Japanese, and Korean. And I already speak one of those pretty well, and I thought it would be fun to do the other ones. Sometimes I still think about doing it, but that's, that's a separate conversation, you know? So, that's the breakdown of these. Now, I've seen the FSI scale problematize several several, several times throughout my years of doing this. And I see everything from, you know, not enough languages are on it. Yes, that's fair. This is not a fully inclusive list. Part of it is because the, the list was built decades ago. And I mean, even back then, like, I don't think 
I don't think the, the the FSI was really interested in teaching people Kosa or teaching people even Georgia. And I think these are things that have come around more recently. Um, I think it's also, I don't know. This is where I struggle with the interpretation of difficulty in time. So, yes, it might take somebody 23 to 24 weeks to get very proficient in Spanish, but 30 weeks to get proficient in German. But I have a hard time with somebody saying, like, well, that means German's harder. Because when I think about, especially when I think about, like, grammar, I don't know. I feel like Spanish verbs are far more complex than German verbs. Maybe not all the time. You know, German word order is much more accessible to an English speaker uh, than Spanish word order. Now, granted, German has cases and Spanish does not, and that proves to be difficult for a lot of English speakers, and so perhaps it's because of that. But, you know, this is where I struggle because people are like, oh, well, German's easy, especially for an English speaker. And I would not say that that's wrong. But is it easier than Spanish? I don't, I don't know. But that's the problem here, isn't it? Like, the problem is the fact that we're even terming these things as easy or difficult. What we really should be talking about is what are the struggles that we're going to face in learning that language? How similar is that language to our native language? And how much time can we reasonably expect to put into our language study before we start seeing very tangible results? One thing that the FSI doesn't include, which I do find slightly problematic, is that it doesn't also consider if a person is multilingual to begin with. So for example, when I first started studying languages, my first foreign language was Spanish, and then I got into French, and then I got into Portuguese. So by the time I got into studying German at all, I already had experience with three Romance languages. And so picking up another Romance language, like learning to read Italian, proved far easier for me than German. Now granted, the FSI scale says that Italian is, quote, easier than German, or or takes less time to learn than German. But Italian was even easier for me, or German was even harder for me, because I was already functioning in a mindset that was more suited towards the way Romance languages generally work. You know, so I remember this very, like, specifically with things like um, the use of the infinitive verb. Like, uh, constructions, like, in order to do something. In Spanish, you know, it's just para and then an infinitive, and that's fine. But then in German, it was this, like, um, something to verb in form like you know it just and when you think about it in english you're like in order to do this thing but you know you just have to post posit the verb at the end of the sentence not the end of the world very similar to english but because my brain was already so used to working with spanish and french and portuguese and creating the structure in those languages trying to parse the germanic structure back into my brain felt weird and very difficult And even though I understood on a logical level, my struggle then became like, I just didn't feel intuitive to me. It wasn't how these things were supposed to be said. That being said, I think that speaking a language that is very similar to your target language can still have downsides. So for example, if you maybe speak the language, but you don't know its grammar well, or you don't, you know, read it particularly well, then the language might not help you as much when studying the new language. You know, so for example, I'm thinking of like heritage speakers of Spanish. If you're a heritage speaker raised in the U.S. who was raised speaking Spanish at home, but 
you know, your grammar is weak or you don't have a lot of training in formal grammatical structures or uh, writing or anything like that, there might be a certain ease and comfort with some of the features of a language like Portuguese or Italian for you. But you're not going to make all the possible links that you could make if you were at a higher proficiency level in that language. In fact, the fact that you are a native speaker or a heritage speaker of Spanish might present its own issues as you, you know, lean back on the Spanish too much or as you have blocks in your head about the way things should sound or be pronounced or something because you're not confident enough in your Spanish to move to a new language, but you're not weak enough in Spanish to ignore it entirely. And though that example that I just gave was specifically about heritage speakers, I think this also applies to L2 speakers. I see this a lot in like a question that I get, which is, you know, well, I want to study multiple languages at once. Good for you. That's great. Study as many as you want. Study to your heart desires. But people often ask like, you know, well, but can I study Norwegian and Swedish and Danish at the same time? Or can I study Spanish and French at the same time or Spanish and Portuguese at the same time? And it's not that you can't. But I do think that walking into um, a learning environment where you're dealing with very similar languages, but you're just starting out in all of them, can prove difficult. I already spoke Spanish, not fluently, but I had a couple years under my belt and felt very comfortable with those few years before I really got into French. Similarly, I... I, you know, then also had another year of French before I got into Portuguese, or maybe I'm mixing up the order. I'm getting old now. But either way, I had some space between them. Whereas if you know nothing about romance languages or how they work, or you've never studied one before, and you want to do Spanish and Portuguese at the same time, or, you know, Spanish and Italian or French and Italian or something, you know, I'm not saying that it's not possible, but I do think that it's going to be a little bit more difficult because as you're trying to create these neural links and connections in one of those languages, and I'm talking about things like for basic words like water, cup, book, and then you're also trying to make the same links and connections in the other language. You, one, you have the higher chance of mixing them up, just replacing one for the other. But two, you're also going to struggle with things like, what is the spelling? You know, if they're similar but not the same. So, for example, if you have, like, French, you know, uh, livre for book and Spanish libro. Okay, well, one's a V and one's a B and one's an O and one's an E. And it's so similar, but it's, it's not the same. And I think you run a higher ch risk of confusing them. You know, like, for example, I... When I started studying Azerbaijani, I didn't feel like my Turkish was very good, and it still isn't very good, and that's not, you know, me digging at myself, it's just me being honest. And one of the struggles I had was sometimes, like, I would be doing flashcards or something, and I would think, like, oh, this is the word, and it was the Turkish word. And the Azeri word was very close, but not the same. Or the Azeri word reminded me too much of a Turkish word. So, like, for example, the Azari word to speak, Danishmach. Okay, Danishmach, that's fine. Nobody's going to tell you, like, anything besides that. But it sounds like Danishmach. 
in Turkish, which means to meet. Now, Grenet Danishmach is also an Azeri word. Um, but I couldn't link Danishmach to the Turkish version, Konushmach, which has a different etymology, but also means to speak, because they're too different. And so sometimes when you're dealing with two languages that are very similar and quite obviously related, but you're not really strong in either one of them, you're actually, I don't want to say you're setting yourself up for failure, but you're certainly making it more difficult on yourself than it has to be. Um, you know, that's why I, I know like my personal example is not always the best example, but I have a lot of people ask, like, how do you do multiple languages at once? I do multiple languages at once because, one, I do with a wide variety of levels. You know, I have everything from I'm just maintaining languages that I have a C level in to I'm trying to improve languages I have a B level in to I'm trying to start new languages that I know nothing in. And then I also tend to work with languages that are not similar. Or if they are, they're at different levels. You know, okay, so the Turkish and Azerbaijani is a bad example, but, you know, I'm completely elementary in Malayalam and I'm completely elementary in Scottish and I'm completely elementary in Faroese those three languages are not related we're not going to have a problem there I mean Scottish and Faroese distantly because they're both Indo-European but we're not going to have a big issue here however while I was exploring all of these and trying to figure out well what do I really want to study and what do I really want to work on I explored both Malayalam and Telugu. I explored both Scottish and Irish. And I explored both Faroese and Icelandic. And for now, I've decided to work on Malayalam and Scottish and Faroese. But, I mean, I still, you know, want to learn Telugu. I still want to learn Irish. And I still want to learn uh, Icelandic. But I also know that if I sat here and continued to study them side by side... I might be presenting more difficulties for myself. I already saw this at the very beginning stages with Scottish because I had done some Irish prior to doing Scottish. And now it turns out that I just, I don't know, I'm really enjoying Scottish and so that's the one I'm going to stick with. But when I was first doing Scottish, you know, I'm like going, okay, and, you know, I was playing on Duolingo, they have a sentence and, you know, you want the word for girl. And I'm like, okay, well, in Irish it's Kaleen and it's spelled this way. And I know that in Scottish it sounds similar. And so I'm trying to like make up the Scottish word rather than actually just learning the Scottish word. Because I'm not remembering it well. And the Irish word is so similar. And so that's the one that's stuck in my brain. And so I think that sometimes when we are trying to work with too many languages all on a low level and they're all related, we're really just adding more confusion. You know, again, that's not everyone, but I think that's certainly the case. I think this is also apt in another example, if I can point it out here, in sometimes even just dialect choice. You know, so for example, I audited a course on Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese for Spanish speakers. And it was a review course for me because I've been studying Portuguese for several years already. And don't get me wrong, I love the teacher to death. And if she's listening... I have no issues with you at all. I think you're a wonderful professor and, uh, you know, and I respect you greatly as a colleague. However, one of the things that I struggled with was that this professor spoke a northern dialect of Brazilian Portuguese. Again, no issues with it. I think it's super cute. However, northern dialect of Brazilian Portuguese, I think this professor was specifically from Recife, um, 
especially, you know, that sort of like Nordestino kind of dialect, I find that it's closer to Spanish. Not that it's literally closer to Spanish, but one of like the very, some of the very typical features of Portuguese that help people distinguish it from Spanish is in its phonology. And some of those features that distinguish it from Spanish are lost in that northern dialect. The very obvious example is like, you know, the palatalization of D and T before, uh, before an E sound. So like the word of, de. In, nor- in northeastern dialect of Brazilian Portuguese, it still becomes D because the unstressed E becomes E or the unstressed A becomes E. But it's not pronounced G anymore. It's now pronounced D. And so I found that I think students struggle with that a little bit more because it's still too similar to the Spanish that they already speak. And so rather than creating as many differences as possible from Spanish in order to allow the students to treat this as this is a separate language and it's going to work differently, using a dialect that's very similar, I think makes it a little bit more difficult, if this makes any sense, because you're more likely to fall into the habits of what you have previously learned. You know, similarly, if I want to learn a new dialect of Arabic, I'm not going to try to be like, well, let me learn Lebanese or Syrian now because they're already so similar to the Jordanian-Palestinian dialect that I personally speak and I'm used to those dialects. And so what's going to happen is I'm just going to end up speaking like a blend of those dialects. Whereas if I went to something far more distinct, like North African, like Moroccan dialect, or maybe something a little bit closer, but still distinct, like Egyptian or Iraqi, I'm going to find more differences there between the dialect in which I'm already comfortable, and that's going to allow me to sort of solidify that new dialect as its own separate thing in my brain, as opposed to it just getting mixed up in a jumbled mess with what I already have sitting there. Now, in addition to just the question of native language and lingual proximity and languages that we've already studied, I think there's one more key feature that we have to consider when we talk about language difficulty. And that feature is desire. And this is what last week's episode was all about. And if you missed it, go back and listen to it. But desire conquers and destroys all things when it comes to language learning. If you want to learn a language and you really want it, it does not matter the difficulty of that language or how different it is from your native language, you will find a way to learn it. And if you don't want to learn that language, you will find a way not to. I mentioned this last week, and I will always tell this story, me and German. I've studied German on and off for years. I took classes in German. I took classes in graduate school. I audited classes in undergrad. I've taught myself German. I've gone through the, you know, Duolingo is a bad example, but I've gone through the whole Duolingo German tree. You know, I I know German grammar. I have plenty of German books in my boxes of books here that I'm in the process of moving. And I, you know, have studied German. I never got to like a very fluent level, but that's because I didn't want to. German was a language that was always forced on me, whether it was by like my peers saying, how can you be in polyglot? How do you speak all these languages, but you don't speak German? Or literally like forced on me by professors being told that, you know, if you're going to work in Near Eastern studies, you have to be able to read German and French. And and I did. I, you know, I had to read articles in German. I read entire, I don't want to say I read the entire book, but I have entire linguistic books written in German that I've read excerpts out of. 
I've studied languages using dictionaries that only exist from that dead language into German. And then I'm looking up German words because I don't know them. Or I'm looking up German linguistic terms and their abbreviations in a dictionary. I've worked with German, but I never wanted to. And I think that lack of desire is what has always held me back. And similarly, that's what I've felt right now about Chinese, about Mandarin. You know, I did a semester of Mandarin as a freshman in college. I did quite well in that course. I had the second highest grade after a heritage speaker. I loved Mandarin. I thought it was awesome. But now, I don't know. I don't want to say I don't think Mandarin is cool, but it's just I don't have the same interest that I had in Mandarin, you know, 12 years ago. And so I don't find myself wanting to study it. And when I don't want to study, it means I don't study. And it means that I build these sort of barriers in my head around it. And I'm like, no, this is stupid. And that makes it difficult to learn, even if it's not something that should be difficult. But what's more important is that when you do want to learn a language, you will make it work. You know, Arabic is considered to be one of the hardest languages in the world because of this, you know, whatever this ranking system is. I love Arabic. I love Arabic. And I'm not saying that I'm sitting here with native speaker proficiency in Arabic, but I feel like I have a very comfortable, solid C1 level in Arabic, no problem. You know, I read, I speak at least one or two dialects. I understand more dialects than that. I, you know, understand complexities about Arabic that I, you know, I have conversations with native speakers and they're like, gosh, I didn't know that that's how that worked. And I don't say that to pat myself on the back and be like, look at me, I'm awesome or something. But what I mean is that a language that should have theoretically proven to be a difficult, trying, awful situation for me was not because I loved it. You know, or other languages that I don't speak as proficiently, but I'm thinking about right now, like languages with difficult phonological systems. You know, when I studied Georgian, when I studied a session, it's a bitch learning to say ah. It's a bitch learning to figure out how to do ejectives. But I really wanted to learn Georgian and I really wanted to learn a session. And so I did it. These sounds can be learned. Your human body creates all of the noises and sounds that any other human body can create, short of having like, you know, a, a cleft palate or something that might hold you back from certain sounds. You know, even things that don't seem as difficult, like I have a really hard time trilling my R's with the tongue, you know, so for years I spoke Spanish and I would gargle my R's, I would say perro, like with a R, which is a gargle in the back of the throat. And then I learned Arabic, and there is a letter that is R in the back of the throat, and there is a letter that is R with the tongue. And I had to learn how to do them separately. And I did. Now, is my R with the tongue perfect? No, I still mess it up. You know, it happens. But I got a lot better. And I learned to do it. Armenian has a distinction between plain voiceless stops, meaning unaspirated, so K, and the aspirated versions, K. And so when you're studying Grapar, or when you're studying modern Eastern Armenian and learning to know what is the difference between ga, k, and ga, or ta, ta, and da, or then you put this into affricates and you go, what is the difference between cha, cha, and ja? And then you go to a language like Georgian where they don't have cha, but they have cha. 
and you have to make it objective. These sounds are not present in English, or if they are, they're in beatboxing or they're in dialectal forms or something, but they're not phonemic forms in English. But you can learn to do them if you want to. And to me, that's the most important thing. You know, yes, the proximity of a language to your native language or to a language that you already speak, that might help with things. Don't get me wrong. Like, that's just facts. But what's more important is how much do you want to learn this language? Because if you want to learn it, you'll make it work. Whether it's putting in the time to learn the sounds, whether it's putting in the time to learn the grammar. Because you have that desire, your brain will make it feel easier in a way. I know a neuropsychologist or neurologist or a neurolinguist is going to message me and be like, that's not how it works. That's how it works for me, okay? Language desire gives you the motivation to do whatever you want and do whatever you need to learn that language. So if you're worried about, oh, is this a hard language? Don't. Be more concerned with, do I really want to learn this language? Because if you don't want to learn that language, it's going to be a hard language. You know, and those, and those are just facts. As always, if you have thoughts on this, opinions on this, questions, ponderables, anything you'd like to share, you can contact me on all major social media at Polyglot Aaron, P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T-E-R-I-N, and also at polyglotaaron at gmail.com. I'm always here. And I love hearing back from you guys. And yeah, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed and I will see you next time.